This morning's scripture, or this morning's sermon, is going to be part of a two-part mini-series. And I say mini-series because we just got off of a five-week series on enough. And if you didn't know this by now, we are getting very, very close to holiday season. Yeah? Have you seen that starting to percolate in Target and other places? Yeah, it's almost Christmas time. So two more weeks, and then we have Advent, which I am so excited to be celebrating together this year, and we're already beginning to plan our Christmas Eve services, and we're just excited about that. I know, we're ahead and we're doing that, but these next two weeks, we are going to address something that for some of us might seem super simple, and so that's fine, it's a reminder. For others of us, it'll be a conversation that we perhaps haven't thought about or have all sorts of questions about. And that is uh, that we're going to be doing a mini-series on science and the Bible, at least kind of in that realm. So science and the Bible and what to do with it. And then next week, we're going to be doing it in kind of a different order. So so stay with us if this is of interest of you or if you've ever had questions, because this sermon is inspired by a conversation I had with one of our youth and I had with another person in recently as well. And the questions that they had specifically around how do they kind of, you know, deal with the things that they've been learning in school around evolution and, you know, just the ways in which things came to be, and then descriptions of scripture or ways in which we were told to believe. And and this hits close to home because I remember a time when I had all sorts of questions in my faith. And so, like I said, this might have been something you resolved years ago. And for you, maybe just invite a friend who you know has questions to listen to the sermon. I'll get a, a point for you as well at the end of it. But for some of us, if you have a question around this area, you've wondered what it looks like, how do we interpret, how do I describe it to other, other people, this is for you. So if you have doubts, you are welcome here. If you have questions, this is especially for you because it is inspired out of them. And see, the thing is, is that I didn't grow up in the church. In fact, I came to know that believe, as I studied ancient mythology and different things as you do in social studies, I believe that Christianity just happened to be a newer version of the ancient myths. I mean, of course, right, by the 20th century, we didn't believe Apollos brought up the sun, right? We didn't believe these sorts of things, and so we just had to find a more ambiguous way to describe what the nature of things happened to be. And because, you know, we're starting to learn things like science, all sorts of things, I I just thought that Christianity was just a more vague way to describe what the ancient Greeks and Romans described in their mythology. And, and that was just an outside perspective because I, like I said, I grew up marginally going to a Catholic church but not having any Christian formation. And of course, though, that, that was a debate still going on in my small town in Minnesota. Debate I remember amongst Christians and non-Christians as they started to talk about, well, what do we do with evolution and, and the fact that the Bible says that God made all things in seven days. Well, six days and then rested on the seventh, right? And and it was something that, at least in my hometown, was actually pretty controversial at times. And I remember the hardest part about when I became a Christian, because I, I started to realize that our faith wasn't just an ambiguous way to describe the nature of things. In fact, I realized that our faith is more to do with the story of God's love 
coming to us in Christ and providing a way of wholeness of life and living in that life in Christian community. And so I, I fell into the Christian tradition because of that and then realized that it wasn't just about this ambiguous faith, but I still had the questions and the greatest sort of uh, you know, leap of faith that I had to encounter because I happened to be amongst uh, more... Uh, you know, Southern Baptist Bible believing folks at the time, and I'm not putting anyone into boxes or anything, but they just said, oh no, God made everything in seven literal days, right? And so there I was, I grew up and I, and I believed everything my teachers were saying, and then all of a sudden I started to believe in this guy named Jesus and that God had sort of a desire for us to know God and came to us in Jesus, you know, the fundamentals of our faith. But then I was being told in my Sunday school classes that I had to, once I started going in high school, that I had to believe the word of God was God-breathed, right? Like the scripture we read. Another translation of 2 Timothy is that all scripture is God-breathed. And so if you have ever had a conversation with someone, or perhaps this is the way that you come to the Bible, and you say that this is God's word on paper, this is one of the scriptures that is used to to enforce that perspective, that all scripture is God-breathed, and God being God does not write mistakes. God, God isn't like me that, you know, needs a grammarly to check my mistakes in there, right? That God's God and the Word of God is steadfast and true and doesn't change from generation to generation. So when God says seven days, God meant seven days. Some of you uh, sociology people or psychology, not psychology, mm, Social studies, that's the word I'm thinking about, might remember the 1920s, a pivotal moment in the era of the United States that for some of us kind of carved this divide, and that was the Scopes trial. Have you heard of the Scopes trial? Yeah, some of you heard of the Scopes trial? It, it was this teacher that happened to have the audacity, although he later on, like whether or not he actually did it, but they claimed he was teaching evolution in the classrooms, Darwinism, and they put him on trial. They put him on trial, and this became an, an entire national debate, right? Like, it was like, like the, the O.J. Simpson trial, right? Like, everyone wanted to know about, and they all descended on this small town and where the, you know, teacher scopes had these, a giant attorney and then a giant attorney on the both sides. I mean, this was the trial of the decade, was just about this person teaching Darwinism in the schools. And, and this was a moment within American history when the, the perception became afterwards, perception became afterwards, that you had to either believe in your faith or believe in science. It, it was the departure, this dualism road that we then lived into and we can still see in some ways, shapes, or forms. And some of us, although we don't live into that divide, have a hard time narrating how is it then that our faith, how is it that our faith is to describe? If I truly believe in God's word, what do I do about evolution, for example? And I remember going into my Exodus Deuteronomy class in undergraduate school, 
And I had, he, he was just the most loving, like, he was, he was Santa Claus, right? I mean, he just looked like Santa Claus. His name was Gerald Wilson. And he was so smart. He knew like 13 languages, Ugaritic, and all these things. And I remember him saying, and I was so furious, he goes, Genesis and Exodus are considered within academics myth genres. And I stood up and I threw my chair. No, I didn't do that, but I wanted to, right? And because at that point, I had believed, right? Because the biggest risk of my faith and owning my faith was to kind of check my brain at the door, right? And so believe that God made everything in seven literal days. I remember arguing with my brother being like, no, humans could have lived. Humans could have lived with uh, dinosaurs and who, the fossils. It's all, you know, God could do anything, right? Because that's what I was told that I needed to believe, to have true faith. It's God's word. And I was so mad. I was so mad and I wanted to listen to nothing he had to say afterwards. Of course, he became the most pivotal professor for me and he was just so gentle and so amazing. But like one of the things that he said that I thought was really important is that the words of Genesis and the words of Exodus are not words, the point of them was never to be the literal depiction of the way things came to be. The point of the words was to orient God's people around what's most important. That the Lord your God is one and the Lord your God made the heavens and the earth. That everything else in the end ultimately wasn't as important as it was that the people of God believed that God had in fact, made the heavens and the earth, and that the Lord, our God, is one. And if you ask any, any Hebrew or, you know, current Jew, they will tell you one of the most refrained scriptures is not God made the earth in seven days. It is not Genesis and God speaking the word. It is the Shema. Love the Lord your God, the Lord that is one with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know that same passage when asked, when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? What, what do they say? He asked that to them. And they say it. Love the Lord God who is one with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and so at that point, I started to realize that maybe, maybe there was a way forward for us with our faith that we could find sort of a way, a common ground together. And friends, I know that this is a little bit of a teaching Sunday, but I'm going to tell you one of the reasons why I'm before you. One of the reasons why I'm before you is before I even knew it. I went to the school, Azusa Pacific University, a, a private Christian school in Southern California. And I went there because I wanted to teach youth ministry. And remember, I believed all these things about the Bible. And then I started to learn more and have a little bit more questions. But one of the things, that school was started as a, a Wesleyan heritage, which is a, a fancy word for people that follow within the line of John and Charles Wesley and the movement that they had. I had no idea what, what in the world United Methodism was, by the way. Just this happened to have meth. And one of the things they had every single student in the entire school take was a class about fundamentals of our faith. And you want to know what they teach us there? This fancy-dancy word that some of you might know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. You got, you're like, what does math have to do with our theology? And Brian, you've lost me. But I promise you, I think that this is one of the most important things for us in our faith 
especially in the 21st century. So important that I sit on a board for Southern California and Hawaii where we interview pastors and we ask them about their call to ministry and how they want to serve and do they have skill sets. And I truly believe that if they cannot articulate the Wesleyan quadrilateral, it will limit them and their ministry. And, and, and the reason being is because I found this to be a way forward. Because if you have ever opened your Bible and you have your sort of scientific, rational mind that's with you as you open its pages, you will be left with all sorts of questions, right? I mean, truly. When was, I, I've been reading through the book of Acts, and you know, Paul, the apostle Paul, he, he was preaching, and like all preachers, we get boring, and a kid falls out the window, right? <laughs> he falls out the window, and he dies, because the pastor was so boring when he was preaching. But you wonder what he does? He walks downstairs, he says, get up, goes back, and starts teaching. And that's exactly what happens. All of a sudden, this kid fell out a window, got up. When was the last time that's happened, that you've seen that, right? Someone been raised from dead. Those questions linger with us, don't they? And it's not the only thing. There's all sorts of stuff riddled throughout the Bible that we have a hard time with. I mean, the Bible at one point endorses polygamy, at one point endorses slavery, and certainly tells women that they need to know their place, and all of these things that we look at now and we say, I I don't know about that. I'm not sure. So then how do I believe this to be the the word of God that I can come and find my faith and grow in my faith and be inspired when I open its pages and all I get is question after question? And then I have the people that are telling me that this is a literal, that God meant every word that God said. and, And I just can't help but wonder, but I don't think that God tells us to you know, commit genocide anymore. I don't think that God thinks that women should be uh, subservient to men. I don't think that, you know, go down the list of the questions. And like I said, remember I began with, if you have those questions, you're welcome here. Anyway, back to the Wesleyan quadrilateral. This was what I found to be so important, that when we go to interpret the word of God, we don't go with the words on the paper. We come with our entire being, right? Our experiences, our history, all of that. And John and Charles Wesley, who began the Methodist movement, laid the the groundwork for what we now call the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is the fancy way of saying when we interpret scripture, God's word, it is not self-evident, right? There's there's another uh, phrase that I have come to believe that there is no such thing as self-interpreting text. Did you know that? What do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean that whenever there are words on paper, it takes interpretation, right? Just look at our Supreme Court. That's why we have it. We have the Constitution that takes people to interpret what the words mean. And there's different interpretations of that, right? So there is literally no text self-interpreting. Whether you like it or know it or want to believe it or not, we're doing it. But John and Charles talked about how it takes more than my opinion, though, right? See, that's the thing about being a pastor. One of the things I I think is really fun sometimes is when someone wants to tell me what the scripture says and tell me what it ought to believe, and you know what they say? Well, it says so. (laughs) And I say, yeah, great, but what do you mean it says so? And they go, well, it says it. It's right here. Open it up. But I say, yes, but what do you mean? Why does it say that? 
and maybe it could mean something else. And that's exactly what we say. To interpret the scripture, we need more than the scripture itself. We need other pieces to the puzzle. And the Wesleyan Quadrilateral names three others. Scripture, right? It's important. You begin with scripture always, because you can't interpret scripture without scripture. You begin with scripture. But then after scripture, you have three other ways that help us. One is tradition. What is the church said throughout? You know, did you know that that idea that what it says on the paper, that it is what it says, is only an interpretive phenomenon for the past 150 years? It's this thing called Scottish realism, <laughs> that it just is what it is on paper. You know, before, one of the earliest interpretations of Scripture was through people like Origen and Platonic thinkers that believed that scripture was just a tool to get us to God's word beyond the word itself. That the real truth was beyond the words. That was a faithful interpretation. So what do Christians have to say throughout history is a way that we interpret. Another interpretive method is experience. I don't know about you, but the women in my life have been incredibly smart, strong leaders in my life. And so for me to say that the Bible says they cannot be in leadership positions, you know what I say to that? What women did you meet, <laughs> right? Because they're certainly not the women that I've experienced in my own life. And so my experience and the collective experience of others tells us that, no, perhaps that women can be leaders. And the Bible might say something about that, but it contradicts my experience and the experience of others. Traditional view was that women couldn't, but our experience was different. And then the other portion, the other piece of the puzzle is reason. Reason. And friends, that is where I believe we as Christians ought to never disregard the voice of the scientists, of the academics, of the people that study and research. Now, I'm not trying to say they're not biased, and I'm not trying to say that they can't be wrong, but I'm trying to say that what we believe about Scripture ought to take that into consideration. So friends, when the psychological journal that is collectively brought together by the, the, the psychologists and sociologists with, as they come together and they write the different you know, uh, ways in which people have disorders or different things, come together and they say that homosexuality and LGBT persons are no longer a disorder or a choice, right? That they're no longer that, that we ought to listen to that as we interpret scripture. In the same way that we no longer believe that women are not fully formed men, like Aristotle and the early Christian world, right? That's, they literally believe that. Women were just not fully formed men, and their brains were part of that. So of course they written the, wrote in the words that women can't lead, because if they're not fully formed, how could they ever lead? And I have professors women professors, you know, Anne Amenbeenum, and she is one of the smartest people I know. If you haven't had a conversation with her, she knows like 10 languages, has been all over. That is not true, right? It is just not true. And so I, I want you to know this. If you have ever questioned your faith, 
in regards to the Bible. Because of someone that says that you can't believe that the Bible says this, you have a few tools in your toolkit. You have scripture, but you have what is tradition said about this? And sometimes tradition can be off base. But you also have your experience and the experience of others. And we are never to disregard the people that are doing hard and difficult research. Because that research helps inform us on how we approach these words. So you need not check your brain at the door, but use them together. I know, it's a little bit more lecture today. Sorry. But I think it's important. Because you know what? I sat down with one of our youth that had questions about their faith. And can I believe when my friends tell me I've got to check my brain? Can I believe when I'm being told that belief needs to look like seven days or whatever it is? And the answer to that, I believe firmly, is yes. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But before you go, here's two things never to get, never, never for, to forget. In order to be formed as Christians, we ought to read the Bible. Stanley Hauerwas, a professor, says we should take the Bible out of the hands of lay people. <laughs> he says all kinds of crazy things. He says that because people that go to the Bible and just says it is what it is, right? But then he also says, you can never read it enough because it's by which we're formed. You will never be able to come with questions if you never read its scriptures. So reading the Bible in our faith journey is an essential task. And just because there's questions and things don't make sense to you, you don't have to close its pages and say to yourself, ah, that's nonsense. Or I just will wait to hear Pastor Brian, <laughs> right? Or whatever pastor you want to listen to. Read its words. And then the other piece is that it is never to be done by yourself. That we always are together in community. Because you know what? Your perspective matters. The way in which you hear its words, because your experiences are important. The way that you grew up, your life story, all of it helps me understand its words even better. Helps us understand. So I want to invite you, because I know that this is something that many of us struggle with. It's not just this youth, which is why I thought it was important. But I want to invite you, throughout the next few weeks, let's get ready for the story of Advent together. Can we do that? And if you don't have the practice of reading the Bible regularly because of all the questions that we've mentioned, perhaps open it regularly. Enough so that you can read through the Gospel of Luke together. Because we're going to be starting in, in a few weeks a new season, a new liturgical year, fancy word, where we're going to be going through Luke throughout the next year. Starting on Advent, the Christmas story will come mostly from Luke. And then we'll do the story of Jesus' trials and temptations as we lead up to Easter. And that, too, will come from Luke. And if you really want to, you could read Luke and Acts. 
Or you can continue to read whatever devotion you're already reading. That's fine. But unless you blow off the dust, open its pages, and begin to read, we'll never be able to find God's word together. Because you and your reading of the scriptures matters. Because we always do it in community. And here is my belief. We do not need to check our minds at the doors because we believe open hearts, open doors, open minds, right? And the Bible is the primary way we as Christians can hear God speaking to us. The primary way. But it comes with all sorts of questions. And it comes with conversation together where we take into consideration what have these people, men and women of faith, thought before us? How are our experiences seen in these words? And how might we learn and grow? Because yesterday is not the same as today. And tomorrow will be different. So too is God's word spoken through this sacred text. And so if there's anything that I get from the Bible, it's this. The Bible is the way in which God's people have faithfully interpreted God's voice throughout the millennia. That's constant. What changes is the way we see it. And I know that might be disturbing for some, but to me that gives hope that God is still speaking now. We just ought to listen to God's voice. And for me, when I think of that, it also makes me think of how we might continue not to restrict, but to open ourselves to the experiences of others and the perspectives, that we might draw our circle wide because God is speaking to all of us. I invite you to pray. Holy and gracious God, we know that the Bible is complicated for many. Some of us have lived and breathed and done our research and yet we still learn from its pages. Still challenged by the faithful stories of the disciples who put their lives in harm's way just to share the love of Christ. Help us as a community read its words together. Not to stay there, but to interpret faithfully you speaking to us through it. Through those that have gone before us, through the experiences of our lives, and through those that are just so smart and devote themselves to learning so much there is about life in this world. And help us together use its words and our skill sets to communicate ultimately what was most important from the day I started this journey with you to the day I will meet you, and that is that your love comes to us in Christ. 
and that you drew the circle wide, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor, free, uh, male nor female, slave or free, are welcome at your table. So let us remember to draw our circles wide and to listen to others and to grow in knowledge and love of you together. Amen.